is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 228, Dual Engine Failure in a Jet with Bruce Meunier, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, welcome, folks, to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, we have a special guest, Bruce Meunier, to discuss lessons learned from his dual engine failure in a jet. But before we begin, a few announcements. First, a quick word from our sponsor. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. At Aviation Careers Podcast, the scholarships, career coaching, and interview prep are there for those that are interested in a career, but the scholarships guide is for everybody. If you're someone that wants to get their instrument rating, a type rating, you want to become a glider, a pilot, maybe you just want to get back into flying after a long leave of absence, aviationcareerspodcast.com, you can find that scholarships guide. You also can go to aerospacescholarships.com. We put in 47 new scholarships this month with eight updates to the scholarships. Also under news and announcements, our next live event, of course, is going to be Sun and Fun Aerospace Expo, and that's March 34, excuse me, March 31st to April 5th this year. And it's going to be a fun one. We're going to be out there doing the same interviews we've always done. We may be doing some more video this year. Also look forward to a podcast, the Sun and Fun podcast. That's coming up uh, in the future, so start looking for that too. And you can live stream, by the way, Sun and Fun all year long liveatc.net slash SNF. That's how you can find them. Now entering cruise flight. Well, today we have a special guest who flies medevac, and he flies a, a jet, and his name is Bruce Meunier, and he had a very interesting incident that happened uh, not too long ago where he had a dual engine failure in a jet. We're going to get that to, a, to that whole story in a minute, but hey, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Hi, right, glad to be here. You know, uh, not too many people have a dual engine failure in a jet, that's for sure, because you're usually highly reliable uh, engines. So you are probably one of the few folks out there that have actually had that happen, I'm sure. Yeah, my understanding from what my boss tells me, he's been flying these citations for you know, 40 years now. He tells me that the engines just don't quit. They, he's never had a problem with them. They don't fail. So to have two of them go out on the same day was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. So, so much for that theory, right? There's uh, it exactly. can happen. <laughs> and you know, the multi-engine failures have happened in the past. And I, I tell you many years ago, I was with somebody who's in the Coast Guard and I had mentioned I was going to buy a twin so I could fly my family back and forth to the Bahamas. And I said, that way I don't have to worry about engine failures. He says, oh, wait a minute. He says, I've had to pull people out of the water in twin-engine airplanes quite a bit. So doesn't mean you won't, won't have an issue. So it's something that doesn't happen very often, but it's something we all should be thinking about and be prepared for. Plus, in a jet, it's there's a different dynamic there, that's for sure. So tell us a little bit, Bruce, about what you fly, and then we'll get into a little bit uh, as far as this incident that day. Uh, well, fly Citations 1s, 2s, and a Citation 7. Uh, that day I was flying a Citation 2. It's a CE-550. CE-550, and that's uh, how many people does that hold? For those folks that don't know jets, we do a lot of piston aircraft here. The way it's configured, you can add uh, 6 to 8 plus the um, crew. Okay, and it's curious. So this medevac 
type of flight that you do, is it primarily people that are obviously they're sick and having to go from one point to the next, or is it other things like transplants, et cetera? What, what does a medevac pilot actually do? Most of the time it's uh, taking a patient from one facility, either up north to a facility down here, or most of the time what our action is down here in South Florida, uh, it's taking someone that's visited from up north or down here for the winter and they get sick and they want to go back to their primary care up north or to their hospital or to their family back up north. Interesting. You know, I lived with a bunch of medevac pilots while I was down in Fort Lauderdale. And, uh, another thing that I saw them do is head down to the cruise ships. And Panama, I guess, was one popular spot where people get sick on a cruise ship and they'd have to be flown back. It's something you don't really think about every day, but it's an important service that you guys do. That's for sure. We've done a couple of internationals where we've picked up someone that's been not kicked off, but removed from a cruise ship because they needed uh, further care than the cruise ship could give them. And then uh, they prefer to get their treatment here in the United States. So, um, yeah, we've done that a few times. Interesting. Interesting. So let's uh, go back to this flight. Uh, the time of the flight is, uh, I think it was just about less than a year ago. So if you could just walk us through the beginning of the flight and uh, take us up to the point of, of the actual engine failure. Sure. It was uh, May 9th this year. It started off just like any other morning. Uh, the medics and uh, the pilots, we got into the plane in Punta Gorda. We put enough fuel on so that we wouldn't be overweight landing in Naples. We took off, landed down in Naples. The medics went and got the patients. So far, nothing's nothing's abnormal. We loaded up uh, the patient and two passengers, the two medics and the two flight crew. And we took off out of Naples and we'll climb up to 350. And we had been cruising at 350 for uh, an hour and 20 minutes. So this was, we were well into the flight before we noticed anything. So this is... Um, so in the so you're up at three five zero and you're cruising along. What was the first indication that something may be amiss? Yeah, everything seemed normal. There were no sounds, no no nothing that was out of the ordinary, other than the N one, which is the fan speed on the engine, uh, basically your RPM, if you will. We were, I was fidgeting with it, trying to fine tune it to a certain power setting that I wanted. I think I was looking for right around 102%, give or take. And it just wouldn't quite sit at 102.0. I'd push it forward, it'd go 102.3, and then it'd go down to 101 something. And I just kept messing with it. And eventually, and when I say eventually, I'm talking maybe 30 seconds, 60 seconds later, I find that. I find myself putting more and more power in trying to get that 102. And at this point I raised, raised my eyebrows and I'm like, okay, something's not, something's not right here. It's not responding quite the way I expect it to. So my co-pilot actually asked me, he goes, what are you looking for? What power setting are you looking for? Cause he saw me just constantly fidgeting with it. And I'm like, well, I'm just trying to get somewhere around 102%, you know, Either way, it's not that important, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And I said, I'm gonna—I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take this back. I'm gonna roll it back to about ninety percent, and then bring it back up and see how it responds, just to see if there was something wrong with it, or see if there was whatever the case was. Well, I rolled it back to ninety, and no problem. It spooled back to ninety without issue. And then when I tried going back forward, it just went down to eighty-nine, eighty-eight, eighty-seven. Just kept spooling back until it was uh, at idle. So at that point, I mean, what was going through your mind? Or were you getting this like sinking feeling or was it more of a, were you calm during the whole event? Well, we were very calm. And I mean, anyone that's done any single engine work in a jet knows it's, it's an absolute non-issue. You just f fly it down and it's the biggest thing is it's the inconvenience of now you're going to a different destination. We were bound for New York, and this happened in the Atlantic just off of uh, Georgia. So, you know, at first, you know, I'm just thinking, okay, well, it looks like this engine's not responding, and I'm not even ready to call it a complete failure that it's had a, you know, I'm not even sure what it is. All I know is with the thrust from just one engine, we're not going to be able to maintain flight at 350, so I immediately asked my co-pilot to request lower 
let them know we needed low or something like one five fifteen thousand, and uh, that's what he did. They granted that, and uh, within another minute, I said, "Go ahead and let them know we've got an engine failure, and we we'd like uh, vectors to a near airport." So, in that whole scenario, when you're doing that, you have two crew, but. You're prioritizing one thing, I'm assuming, and that's actually just the flight and the flying the airplane, right? Yeah, flying the airplane, I mean, it's just like every flight instructor says, and it's the same thing holds true forever. Keep air over the wings, and you can fake the rest. So um, if we stayed up at 350 and worked on the engine or worked on problems, eventually we would not have that air over the wings. We would put ourselves in a stall condition because there's not enough thrust with one engine to stay up there. So, yeah, priority one, fly the airplane, and... In that case, that required us to descend. So I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize in a in a jet is, unlike with a piston aircraft, it, it's very evident when the engine fails in a piston aircraft. If you, it's ever happened, and you know the passengers will start really noticing. But one of the weird things about a jet, it's not like in the movies. You know, it doesn't sputter and spit and stuff like that. It just kind of gets quiet, doesn't it? Yeah, and even less so when it's just one engine, it doesn't really get that much quieter. Um, The the tone changes, but it's not like it goes silent or anything. Um, It sounds a lot more like when you're descending, when you hear the pilots pull back the power a little bit to descend. That's a bit more like what it sounds like when one engine rolls away. (laughs) You know, it it reminded me of my friend when he lost an engine in, in a jet, he looks to the first officer and they're doing some things he's like what what was that and he says dude you lost an engine it's it's that quiet which is just always amazes me in a jet uh, what happens there so it's now as far as your training is concerned and we always talk about this as instructors you know we keep saying you know where are you going to go when something goes wrong and you go over emergency procedures etc so at this point you've had this kind of training you've gone away i'm assuming to one of these training facilities in the citation so this is even though it's an abnormal situation it's it's something you've trained on quite a bit is that correct yeah, it's considered an abnormal procedure, but it's very normal. And it's one of those things, uh, whether it be regular commercial or medevac or airlines, you train all the time on single engine. So, you know, at this point, you know, the single engine is not even anything to get your heart rate up. So it, it is true for those thinking about getting their multi-engine rating. Uh, it's all about one engine, not two. So you're going to be doing a lot of single engine stuff. Just like here, if you're listening to him talk, it doesn't. It's not overly exciting. It happens. We shut it down. You move on. Uh, it's uh, it's different than if it was like a fire. That's a, a different kind of that a little. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that that's a lot a lot different in that you want to get moving as quickly as you can. That's about the one that you don't want to yeah. have to deal with. And uh, it really what's interesting is though in this whole scenario you have your first officer with you now. How did you did you divvy up the responsibilities like you flew and the first officer did other things and and then what about the passengers? Well, at this point, you know, on a single engine, it's still a, fl- a normal flight, and you know, he's handling the radios. I'm talking to him. You know, I'm flying. We're both talking about what we ought to do, where we ought to go. Um, it's there's no time crunch whatsoever. There's no stress. There's there's nothing as of yet to to stop it from being a normal crew. Uh, in fact, so on the way down, or, or we eventually diverted towards Savannah, and uh, I said, why don't you let the passengers know why we've turned off course, and we've started to descend, clearly, you know, hours ahead of schedule. So he turns around, he lets them know, you know, it looks like we've lost an engine, and we're going to be diverting to uh, Savannah, um, and, you know, we'll, we'll catch up with you on the ground. Now, we've got two medics in the back that have been with us for a long time. They've got a bazillion flight hours on their own. So they know that single engine is no big deal. So I'm sure they let the passengers know, okay, so it's a single engine. They'll come in. It's not going to be a big deal. We'll land and we'll figure out how we're going to get up to New York from there. So I'm sure they let them know that just because an engine's out, it's not really a safety issue. It's not a problem. So uh, those of us that fly Cherokees, single engine is a is a normal event. <laughs> so, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but in 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 a jet like this where you're going high altitude, it's not it's not normal. It's more of an abnormal. I like how how you put it there. Yeah. So 
with that said, you know, they're, they have all these hours, you're all, you know, very calm, et cetera. I was wondering, as far as the decision where to go, what type of things went through your mind in that process right now, now that you've lost one engine? Is there, you know, airport facilities, et cetera? Is there, what are the kind of things that you're thinking about? Well, I had a general idea of what the weather in the area was everywhere from departure to destination. Um, so I knew that it's not like there was low IFR anywhere, so I wasn't too concerned with that part. But um, we asked ATC for a relatively large airport that was you know, fairly close. He shot out three suggestions. One of them was Savannah. I'm familiar with that. We had been in and out of there a few times, and I said that will work great. So that's we, we wanted a place with... Um, you know, facilities, maybe a mechanic on hand, you know, because we weren't sure what we were dealing with yet. So Savannah sounded good. That's where we headed. So you're going to Savannah. Things are fairly normal, but things are about to change. As you're going towards Savannah and you're descending, uh, something something happens. And kind of walk us through when and how things change during that flight. Sure. So we're coming down. We've pulled out the single engine approach checklist. We've gone through everything. We've discussed everything way ahead of schedule. Um, there's not a whole lot to do on the way down because even from 350 to the ground, you even if you're descending at 1,000 feet a minute, that's still 35 minutes. you got a long time before you're down, so it's not like you're crunched for time. So we you know, proactively went through the checklist, figured out what our V-refs were going to be as single engines a little bit faster, and figured out, you know, what runway we're using, the weather, backing it up by what approach it was visual, backed up by RNAV, and so on, blah, blah, blah. And we were doing all that stuff. And they're kind of sending us in a rather large vectored square to descend to get into the airport, you know, because we're pretty high still. And as we're coming down through 8,000, we're flying a leg that happens to be away from the airport. And you know, I'm making a small adjustment on the power again, and it's not responding correctly again. And I'm like, rut row. And it started spooling back just like the first one did. So we lost the second one. And I said, uh, Jerry, we've lost the second engine. So, and after I told him that, I didn't even wait for him or tell him to do anything. I just jumped on the radio and let him know we had lost our second engine and required immediate vectors direct to the airport, which time they told us to turn 190 and that's what we did. We turned straight to the airport. Now, we had already had the airport loaded into the GPS. We already had all the runways in. We already knew everything. So once we made the turn, uh, this is about 8,000, and uh, I think we were 13 miles from the field. So we knew we were going to make it, and it didn't – it wasn't uh, – if we had done the math and figured out that we weren't going to make it, that might have been a little scary, but – when you realize that, okay, we can glide in, no problem with no engines, and we'll make it, not a problem. So how did you know that? And I think the point I'm trying to make is you, you knew something about your airplane more than the average person as far as being able to make the field. Yeah, it's based on what I call gorilla math and having an idea, you know, glide ratios of airplanes. Um, a generic glide ratio for like your Cherokees and your Skyhawks is about a 10 to 1. And then your larger Airbuses and Boeings are closer to 17 to 1. And honestly, I don't know what the glide ratios were with the citation. They're not listed anywhere. But I guessed that they were probably somewhere in the vicinity of 12 to 1 or greater. And 12 to 1 basically means you're going to be able to do twice as many miles as you are 1,000 feet high. So we were 8,000 feet high. So theoretically, that means 16 miles. Um Based on that, we knew we'd make it. Based on the time that it would take to get to the field and our descent rate versus how far away we were, we were going to make it. So I I crunched my own numbers in my own head with my own gorilla math, and I thought we'd make it. Jerry did his way, whatever way that was, and he said we'd make it. Therefore, we were both, con- we were both convinced that uh, no harm, no foul, we're going to make it. So you know you're going to make the field. But now, you know, I'm sure your heart's pumping a little faster now, a little more adrenaline running through your veins. Nah, not really. We're pretty calm. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's, and, I, I mean, 
I can't say how we would have reacted had we crunched the numbers and be like, "Whoa, we're five miles short." That might have been a little different. That would have probably got a that would have made her butt pucker a little bit. But yeah, as it was, it was it was pretty calm and relaxed. Yeah, and knowing you can glide in, that's a that's a big deal. The other thing yeah. too is part of that. You going back to systems. What about the, your flight controls? Tell us a little bit about that. Are you not concerned because now you don't have hydraulics or something? No, not concerned at all because we know that this plane has mechanical linkage. It's all cable-driven. Um, so cable-driven ailerons and rudder. So we know that that's not an issue. We did discuss, however, after the second engine failed, you know, on the way in, okay, let's discuss what systems are going to work and which ones aren't going to work so that we can be prepared for them. Um, most importantly, the one that immediately comes to mind would be the landing gear because the landing gear is hydraulics and uh, is hydraulic and the hydraulics is run off of the engine driven pump. So uh, we expected to not have landing gear. Um, we, as, as far as the hydraulics go, we expected not to have speed brakes, but at this point, don't touch the speed brakes. So that's the last thing we need. Um, but yeah, the flight control surfaces were all mechanical, all cable driven. So we weren't too worried about that. And uh, yeah. So one of the things that I'm kind of taking away from this is it's nice to know your systems and uh, to understand those things is really, really important. Because as you've been going through this, it seems that a lot of things weren't concerning you because you already knew that the, what the yeah. effect would be. Yep. Yeah, we knew the flaps are electric, the um, flight controls are cable-driven, and then the gear was the, I won't say the only concern, but one of the main concerns. Uh, and we did discuss, okay, when are we going to put the gear down so that we, A, have enough time to blow the gear down pneumatically if the hydraulic don't work, and not too early to where we're not throwing a bunch of drag out there and not making the field. So now you're heading towards a field, and you've got you've already been talking about all those things with your systems, your hydraulics, your your gear. How what's going on in the airplane? I mean, what's happening with your passengers and the other crew that are on board? Well, the good news for us as pilots is we didn't have to listen to anyone in the back screaming because they didn't realize the second engine quit. They were all still under the impression that we were coming in single engine and that it was a uh, ho hum, no big deal. We've trained for this a hundred times. Um, what had happened was on the way down when the one engine had failed and I had brought the second engine back a little too far at one point, not enough bleed air was coming into the cockpit to pressurize and it kind of made everybody's ears pop. And I'm assuming they didn't really pop their ear, clear their ears as well as they needed to, to realize that it got really quiet at 8,000 feet. So that kind of helped you there and kept calm in the in the cabin and, and helped you concentrate too on what you're doing. So walk us through now how now you're you're in a citation jet. You're in a twin citation jet. You've you're a glider now. How much training have you had, first of all, before we talk about what happens next, in actually gliding in a in a citation? Well, when we were in the simulator uh, at the end of the simulator sessions, they always kind of say, okay, you've got, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes left. Was there anything you want to do? And one of the things that my sim partner and myself said, yeah, let's do no engines. Let's glide around, see how it, how it handles. Now, when you're in the sim and you cut the engines off and you're gliding around and you're like, wow, this flies really nice. You're thinking, I wonder if this is how it really flies in the real world. So, um, Two minutes, maybe three minutes. That's the amount of training I had on uh, no engine gliding. And so, <laughs> that's not much. I mean, no, not at all. <laughs> so, how'd you figure out, for instance, your glide speeds? Like in some of the planes that uh, most of the planes that I fly, I know what my my best glides are. How about in this plane? Yeah, when we go through the checklist and go through the V speeds, it's not listed in there. The best glide is not listed in there. We do have an angle of attack indicator. Uh, and that'll help you stay out of trouble. Uh, but as far as a specific speed, we didn't have anything to go on. Um, we both agreed that somewhere between 140 and 160 was a, a good number. And the closer we got to the ground, the closer we got to 140, which, as it turns out, is actually really close to best gliding those. So it worked out uh, pretty well. It was mostly feel, and it was a very similar pitch. Um, 
you know, when we train in single engine, your Skyhawks and Cherokees and so whatnot, when you pull the engine back to idle, you're, you're always thinking, well, when it really quits, it's going to come down a lot faster. It's going to be a little different pitch, whatever. In the jet, the difference between at idle and off was, I don't even know that you would even notice the difference other than sounds as far as uh, your pitch and your speed and everything. It's very, very similar. So you're not seeing much of a difference. Uh, so one of, the, one of the things that's interesting, though, you're talking about the jet, is, is that you bring things to idle on a piston, things do change. Uh, but in, in a jet, it doesn't quite change as much. So now you're going through all these things, the sights, the sounds, the, all those pictures are different. Now you got to get it on the ground. So walk us through what happens next. And, uh, and, and obviously the, the landing was successful somewhere. So tell us, tell us what happened next. Well, I think every IFR pilot can remember the very first time they broke through a low cloud layer and the airport was right there where it belonged. We had a very similar feeling when, because at 8,000 feet, we were heading towards the airport according to the GPS and according to radar vectors from ATC, but we couldn't find it or see it because there was a layer between 3,000 and roughly 4,200. Um, so we couldn't see anything, but once we broke through that layer at 3000 and the airport was right there and we could see the runway, we're lined up with it. That was a really good feeling. So that's something to think about too, is if you do have an engine failure above the clouds, you're probably going to have to descend, uh, especially for those of us that fly IFR a lot through a layer and the instruments need to work. So what about the instruments in your airplane? What kind of, what differences are there now that you're just flying without engines or are there any? No, there weren't any in this. Um, there, you might in a smaller have a vacuum related issue if your engine's not running, but ours were all electronic and we didn't have any failures of any, uh, um, and any of the instruments to speak of. There was a point where the altimeters glitched out for a couple hundred feet. And to this date, we're still not sure why that happened. Um, but then they came back on and it worked fine. The backup worked the entire time, of course, but not as if you didn't have enough going on that right <laughs> it's like let's let's throw something else in it's like it's like you were going back to your simulator at times saying hey let's try this you know yes <laughs> but wow it's, it's like it reminds me back in the day when i was the uh instrument instructor and i was like what else can i fail on this student and they actually can find a way to still fly it that's kind of how i was feeling at that <laughs> moment okay well what else could fail <laughs> And during that failure, too, obviously you guys kept your cool, which I think, you know, hats off to you guys for doing that. I think that's terrific that uh, you were concentrating on just exactly your job. And and obviously, you know, as a professional pilot, you, you're you concentrating on getting the airplane on the ground and safely, so you really don't have time to get all crazy and nervous. And, and that's yeah. what people don't really realize. You're so laser-focused um, on that emergency at hand. Yeah, and like I tell all of my patients or passengers in the back you know i like you but i love me so we're not crashing today we'll get this on the ground so <laughs> uh, and i love that because it's really you're taking care of yourself not so much all those people behind you and right. every so, every passenger that's ever been nervous of flying they've got to know that the pilots up front want to go home that night too yes uh, great way uh, that was great great uh, service to to the people out there that are nervous flyers that you say that so now that you've you have this glide ratio, you've broken out. I mean, now you're visual and what, you know, kind of walk us through that, that landing. I mean, was there a point where you felt you're too high, too low? And, and what did you do? Oh, no engines. There's no such thing as too high. We can get in there. That's easy. All airplanes will come down fast enough. But so if I back it up just one moment, there was a step that I did skip. So after the second engine quit, we assumed at this point it's fuel related and that's why it quit. Um, and at that point I was thinking, okay, well just for the sake of it, let's give a try. Let's try and refire number one. I don't think it'll fire because whatever the reason that they both quit is still there. And I'm sure the fuel is not any better now, but since we had no engines, we had a little time to kill. I did try to refire the uh, first engine that quit and it was a waste of time. It didn't work. So we're coming down through the clouds and like you were asking now towards the landing. So we've come through the clouds. We see the runway. It's right there. Um, we did not want to introduce any extra drag any sooner than we had to. So we started with 
the first notch of flaps fairly late, uh, our speed was still fine. I didn't care if we landed uh, long or fast because we had, don't quote me, but I think it was 9,000 feet, somewhere, something like that. It was, a, it was a plenty long runway that, A, I didn't care that we didn't have speed brakes, and um, B, I didn't care if we came, up, came in a little fast. I wasn't about to trade airspeed away for no reason. So we put out the uh, first notch of flaps, and I asked ATC if I could go over to Tower because I wanted to talk to Tower about uh, whether they could visually see my gear down. Now, I knew and I understand that the tower can't, for liability reasons, confirm that your gear is down, but they can tell you that it appears down. So I wanted that I wanted that um, opinion as well because, we, ex- as we expected, the gear wasn't going to go down because the hydraulics wouldn't be working because the engines were off. So they sent us over to uh, tower, and, you know, we got down to an altitude, and I can't say where it was, between 500 and 1,000 feet. We're like, okay, let's drop the gear down. We've got plenty. We're going to make it even with all the all the uh, drag out. We'll make it. This will give us plenty of time to pneumatically blow it down if it doesn't work. So we, dr- we dropped the nose. Um, I'm sorry. We dropped the uh, gear handle, and uh, we see the nose gear light, light first, like it always does, and then followed by the left. And then a little bit longer pause than normal, but then the right one came on and all three green lights came on. And uh, I looked at Jerry and I said, I'm convinced that all three are down and locked with the lights. Do you agree? And he agreed. And I said, okay, we're done with that. Let's move on. So at that point, our biggest concern, which was the gear, is now no longer a concern. We've, we're convinced it's down and locked. So then we just waited a little longer. And at this point, there's really not much to do. We're just waiting for the runway. And uh, we dropped the rest of the flaps in late, touched down come to a a coasting stop. Uh, The fire trucks were all at a intersection about halfway down the runway. So I stopped at that intersection just in case. And the firemen walked over to the plane casually. And so I was like, well, that's a good sign. That means we're not on fire and there's no big parts missing. And, you know, he asked how we were doing and if everyone was okay. And and that was it. So (laughs) it's always a good sign when they're just casually walking over to you. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that, uh, this all went like you were just cool and calm as a cucumber, which is great. How about ground control? I mean, they, they must have, uh, you know, I'm sure been, you know, like, oh, do you need any assistance? What, what happened after you landed? <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if there was a miscommunication there or if someone didn't get the message, but um, they asked us which FBO we were going to. And I'm like, we're not going to any FBO because it's not running. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to need a tug. And uh, FBO is your choice. We haven't had a chance to look at FBO is what we were flying in. So <laughs> we ended up getting towed over to Signature. But, yeah, when we came to a stop um, at this point, so in the very beginning before we took off in Naples, I talked to one of the passengers, and she said she was an extremely nervous flyer and didn't like small airplanes. So I promised this lady a great flight, and I promised to be smooth, and I promised to give her a nice landing and everything else. So I thought of her on the way down after the first engine failed. I'm like, well, this isn't going to help her confidence while flying. So after the second one failed, and then we touched down and we landed, I did turn around and ask her, how did you like the landing? Because <laughs> the landing was pretty smooth. It was, for all things considered, it was a great landing. And she's like, oh, I'm just glad to be on the ground. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, they were kind of the medics and, you know, they're – kind of looking at me like, why would you shut the engine down? Why aren't we moving? You know, and I told him, oh, by the way, we lost the second engine and we landed with no engines. <laughs> oh, by the way. <laughs> wow, what a testament to your flying skills. And, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I guess she got her good landing and her smooth flight. She, I, she did. So what was the reaction from them when you told them, hey, you know, we lost our, our second engine? What, what did they say, the medics? Uh, the medics, you know, they, they expected that. You know, there is uh, – as seasoned as the pilots, so they expect to be on the ground safely. Um, the passengers were incredibly thankful and grateful, and it, they were mostly shocked that something that significant happened, and they couldn't tell from the back based on looking up front and seeing how we were, you know, casually talking to each other, casually pushing buttons, casually flipping switches. She said, there's no way looking from the back that you could tell that there was any issue up front or that you guys had any concern about anything. I'm like, well, we didn't. We were just kind of flying it to the runway. And so one of the things that happened right afterwards that was comical was, you know, I got out of my chair and I came back there to talk to them. And, you know, I see my lunchbox there and I, I reach in and I grab an apple and I started eating it. She's like, 
how can you, after something like that, just eat an apple? And one of the medics says, well, that's what he does after we land. He just goes and gets some food. He's always wanting to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Got to feed the pilots, right? (laughs) That's it. Especially after an emergency. (laughs) The flying part was done. Now it's time to eat, right? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's cool. What a neat story this is. But there's, you know, one of the things that as I'm listening to you is, that, and we all can learn from this, is the biggest thing is to, to keep calm. I mean, I know you're busy and stuff like that, and a lot of times those who've had emergencies have said, you know, they really didn't think about the emergency till afterwards. So it seems like you are similar there. But let me ask you this. After the emergency, was there any after effects from you, maybe psychologically, et cetera? Did you think about it? No, it didn't bother me at all. In fact, um, when we called the office, uh, and I let them know we had a dual engine failure because all they knew was they saw the plane divert and they saw us land in Savannah. They didn't know if it was because the patient's health was declining. They didn't know what the reason was. So when I got on the runway, I called them and I said, hey, we've diverted to Savannah. We've had um, a dual engine failure. And they freaked out. They were all worried and panicked and whatever else. I'm like, listen, we're already on the ground. <laughs> so there's nothing to worry about now. We're good. <laughs> so they're like, okay, we'll call you back. And we don't know what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, she's she says that they're going to send up another jet to grab the patients and passenger and continue them on to New York where they were supposed to be going. But she doesn't know who the crew's going to be. And I'm like, well, why don't we just fly them up there? And she's like, are you sure you're okay to fly? And I'm like, yeah, we're fine. So, you know, we were already here. We might as well fly up there. So that's what we did. We uh, just got a different jet and finished the mission. Besides, what are the chances of having it again? A dual engine failure, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully none <laughs> hopefully none uh interestingly from this incident and we'll get into that in a second there there were some other instances uh because of the the cause of this engine failure that happened later on and before i think too uh but but right now you're on the ground you're safe you're <clears throat> on your way to your destination with a new jet etc i'd like to rewind a little if there's nothing else you want to talk about with the incident is for the audience, for us that are listening here, talk about some of the things you did right, some of the things you you did wrong or maybe you could improve upon so that we as pilots can maybe learn from this incident here. Um, one of the things, I guess, just for me and my two cents is that I'm the kind of person that, you know, I, I fly twins and I'm like very confident, maybe overly confident in the fact that I have two engines. And maybe this will stop that confidence. Maybe it'll make me think a little more. I'm always thinking about where to land, uh, but maybe I'll be not not as trustful of both engines. It reminded me and reminds me in a twin, you're right. You got two engines and, and their systems are all completely separate. The only thing that kills them both is fuel. And in twins, what tends to happen is you get jet fuel instead of avgas. Um, So that reminds me of that. So everybody getting their fuel, when you're getting fueled, have a look at the truck and see what fuel they're putting in. Um, You could could save your life that way. If you catch them putting jet fuel in your your, um, piston twin, you know, that could save your life for sure. Much less critical for a jet because if they put avgas in our jet, it's still going to fly, so... So with yours, um, looking at just that fueling situation, let's talk a little bit there. You were there as part of the fueling process or not? I was not there. Our mechanics were there. They were they fueled it up before we got there that morning. Okay, and I did read the NTSB report and um, noticed that they put something in the fuel that shouldn't be there, and that's uh, DEF. So maybe you could explain to the audience why you would add stuff to your fuel in, in your jet, and then what actually was put into your jet? Okay, sure. So the jets all ref- require jet fuel, but some, not all, require Prist, which is an additive. It's an anti-ice and antibicrobial um, additive. It stops growth of um, bacteria inside of the fuel, inside of the water that's in the fuel, and it stops the water that is in the fuel from freezing. Some jets need it, some don't. Ours happens to need it, so we got. We always uh, ask for Jet A positive, which means with Prist. So the Prist was not the problem, of course. The problem was apparently 
someone from the airport used a container, a DEF container, to transport the prist. So the prist was contaminated with DEF and then pumped into our plane. Now, jet fuel is filtered into the tanks at the airport. Then it's filtered going into the truck, and then it's filtered coming out of the truck into the into the plane, and the plane filters it before it gets to the engine. However, the prist gets pumped in after the filters of the fuel truck. So the prist is pumped in and mixed with the fuel as it goes into the airplane's wings. So there was no filtering for this. So the contaminated prist with DEF is what made it into our fuel system and caused this problem. So as far as the prist, so that's the that's the fluid that we use uh, to the antimicrobial and also the one that will uh, prevent the icing and also keep it in uh, suspense in there. The other stuff, the DEF, now why? what is that stuff? What is DEF? DEF is diesel exhaust fluid. Any diesel truck made after 2010 requires this additional fluid, DEF, diesel exhaust fluid, to be added separately from the diesel. And what it does is it is sprayed into the exhaust to reburn emissions in the exhaust for a cleaner end product emission. Um, this DEF, though, if it's accidentally poured into your diesel, gas tank, or jet, completely destroys everything in the fuel system. The tank, the fuel lines, the injectors, the pumps, the filters, everything. So the DEF, it was on the airport, I'm assuming, because the truck that was being driven must have been diesel? Yeah, because some of the airport trucks are diesel, and they would then require the DEF additive. Interesting. But there's no need for DEF in any airplane of any sort. Wow. So from that, I mean, would you have a suggestion, since this happened to you, to maybe the people that operate the airports, et cetera, um, you know, what do we do? How do we prevent this from happening? Yeah, it seems like an exception for airport vehicles to allow them to not require the uh, DEF and the reburn through the exhaust for the emissions. It seems like they should be able to get an exception. Um, but at this point, after this has happened, and it seems to have gone uh, to all the FBOs through all the fuelers, through all the uh, fuel contractors, and it's been added to all the training for all the fuelers. It seems like hopefully they have made it so that DEF is so far away from anything related to fueling that it won't happen again. But you're right, it would be nice to not see DEF anywhere on the property. This is, wow, this is really fascinating. You know, I would challenge everybody listening to go to your FBO and ask them, especially if they pump jet fuel, you know, what are you doing to make sure this DEF doesn't get near the aircraft? And uh, I, I'm going to, heck, after this, I'm going to go see my friend at the FBO that runs an FBO and ask them those questions because I'm now fascinated by this because um, it's really something that is a huge, you know, safety issue and could be going forward. So hopefully by you telling this story and also them getting this out, because I know the NTSB put out some stuff and so did the FAA said, hey, listen, you know, make sure <laughs> that you keep those separate. And how do we go about that? Well, it's through training, just like anything else. So hopefully they're doing a better job with training, which I'm sure they are. Um, but how about other things as far as, you know, you talked about fueling and watching the fueling. Sometimes we may be watching the fueling and also make a mistake. And unfortunately, you know, recently I've uh, lost somebody I knew that had fueled the aircraft improperly, told the line person to fuel an aircraft improperly. So not only do you need to watch them, you also have to watch yourself, especially if you're someone like me who goes from one plane that's my piston to another one that has jet fuel. It's really important to say, okay, I'm in a jet, I need jet fuel. And if the fueler is looking at you saying, well, do you really want this? Maybe it's time to stop and think about that. So uh, I know I've had this happen the other day. Someone said, you know, are you sure you want to do that? And it was something else safety related. I was like, why is this person asking me this question? So when they're doing that, maybe have a to stop a little bit. Um, as far as, you know, other lessons learned, Bruce, what else can us, the, the listeners, uh, learn or glean from this? Maybe systems knowledge, et cetera, from this incident. 
Yeah, you would ask, uh, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What might I have done different? Um, mm. As far as done right, and what I think most everybody can take away from this is uh, the systems, knowing your systems. And it was nice knowing the systems, knowing what was going to work, what wasn't going to work, and having that idea. Because um, if you spend, if I had spent, you know, 20% of my attention trying to figure out whether my flaps were going to work or not, that's 20% of my attention I could have spent somewhere else because my flaps are electric and there's no reason they wouldn't work. Um, so knowing your systems is, I, I think, is would be super key. Because it's very easy when you're learning to fly or learning a new airplane to be like, yeah, the ailerons work. When I turn the handle to the left, when I turn the yoke to the left, the ailerons go up on this side, go down on that side. Why do I care how it's done? Well, this is why. When this happens, so that you'll be familiar with the systems and you'll know which ones fail when you've got that uh, smoke coming out from under the under the control panel and you flip your master off completely and you've got no electronics, now you know what is and isn't going to work then. Um, just that. As far as um, what I did wrong, not really wrong, but in flights after, you know, I notice looking over at my switches on the left, I see them a little bit differently. I have them more prioritized in my head. For example, the ignitions and the fuel pumps are on the same row. So rather than waiting for my co-pilot to read the checklist and remind me, hey, turn the fuel pumps on, see if that helps, or turn the ignitions on, if you've got any kind of engine troubles, that whole row, just flip them all up, and maybe it solves it, maybe it doesn't, but it's very easy to just do that. And I've noticed that since that flight that, okay, if I've got engine problems of any sort, uh, before I even get to a checklist, before we even start going through things, I'm just going to flip that whole row on. It can't hurt anything. So that's one of the things you glean from this. But how about, um, you know, moving forward, have you seen other instances where you're doing things differently from this incident or um, are things pretty much the same? I'd say they're pretty close to the same. We already have um, fueling procedures where we watch them fuel. Um, we check the amount that they've given us. And if if you're just saying 100 gallons aside, you know, make sure it's 200 gallons. Make sure when you get in that the fuel gauges are still level. If you said top off, make sure that the number they gave you is pretty close to what you guesstimated it would be. Uh, so therefore, you'd know that they didn't just do one wing. Um, etc. Make sure that you're getting the right type of fuel that you ask for. Those things have all always been the case. So, and in this scenario, you know, the mechanics watched them fuel. They saw the truck. They saw them put the prist on. They know the prist was going in. They know it was coming out of a Jet A truck. But there's no way of knowing that uh, the prist was contaminated. Has this caused you to change anything as far as flying? Uh, I know you fly piston aircraft and small aircraft. Has it changed anything there? Um, not really. Okay. Not not really. Good. And it it does make me think I don't want to have the engine quit in a in a piston though because they don't glide as far. They don't <laughs> they don't go as nice. It just seems a little bit more <laughs> serious. Yeah, it's funny because people don't realize that that they do uh, glide pretty far if you lose an engine in a jet and you have a lot more momentum, etc. But it's really th- Bruce. This has been awesome just going over this whole incident and. And the fact that you're relating this to us, I think that's terrific. And it just happened. I didn't realize that was this year that this happens. And Yeah, that uh, was May of this year. Wow. So you haven't had any uh, th- thoughts of not getting back in the airplane, which is good, because uh, a lot of people, I think, would be reticent. Because after something like this happens, you know, you get a little bit nervous and shook up, and sometimes it's like, wow, you know, uh, maybe I don't want to be flying anymore. I've had students where I had an engine failure with one student who decided – He's not going to fly anymore. He decided he'd finish his rating, but uh, he's going to move on and become an air traffic controller because their engines don't quit. Um, but well, it, I certainly understand that, and um, people that have that mindset probably, you know, it might be better for them to do something else because um, when chaos happens, they might not react the way that they would prefer to react. And we never know. None of us know how we're going to react until it actually happens. You know, everyone can train and everyone can. You know, they can know all the procedures for when something happens, but how you're really going to react in the situation is a little different. So, 
Yeah, and I think that's very true. I mean, if you've ever been in an emergency a situation, uh, you don't really know what you're going to do until it actually happens. So that's really some, some good advice. It's hard to simulate that sometimes, but in the simulators, many many times you can try. That's for sure. Well, Bruce, this has been awesome, man. I, I really appreciate your spending the time and relating your situation. I know my, my adrenaline got a little bit pumping there as you were talking about losing the engine, especially the second one. Um, but if people do have questions about the incident, of course, you can write us at stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com and we'll forward them on to Bruce. But uh, what's next, Bruce? Are you going to you're gonna keep flying for the medevac? And uh, I think you said you have a Cherokee 180. Is that correct? Yeah, I got a Cherokee 180 that I fly on my own time. And I'm still flying for the same company out of Punta Gorda, um, Citations. And I'm pretty happy there. I don't I don't know what uh, the future holds, but for now, that's definitely I'm happy there for sure. That's cool that you fly best in aircraft because, you know, we a lot of times see people move on to careers in jets. um, But you still you still fly the piston, you know, and and that that's really, really cool. Why do you keep doing it? My boss has said that if I wanted to fly the jets on my own time, he'd let me do it um, at his cost of, I think it was like 1600 an hour or something like that. I'm like, well, no, thank you. (laughs) So for me to fly my charity at my own time and it cost me $50 an hour. That's more, more realistic. (laughs) So it's more monetary. Well, that's cool. At least you have that opportunity. Say someday, you know, you, you have the money for, or something and it'd be kind of fun to take the the jet out for a spin. That's for sure. But, uh, Hey Bruce, this has been awesome. I I really appreciate you doing this and great job. Hats off to what you did. You did a a wonderful job and, um, I think we all can learn from you and, and what you've done there. And I appreciate your coming here today. All right, sir. Thank you very much, bud. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, if again, if you have questions, you can write us at stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. No picks of the week this week, but I have a lot of links at the bottom of the, the podcast at the notes in episode 228 where we talk about, like that interview we talked about with Baron Pilot did a great job, and also some of the other, the NTSB report, etc., talking a little bit about the fuel and the DEF, etc. But most importantly is fly the plane and try to get to know your plane, have more knowledge of it, and, and learn from Bruce and what he's done. And, and it really, you know, he's a testament to what a true professional pilot is, and that's what we should all strive for. Well, folks, safe flying. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.